in that moment cannot express to you how much I wanted to die. They sedated me. I woke up three days, three days later, and my mom, you know, kind of <laughs> ruefully asked, like, how are you doing? And because I couldn't talk, I had this little whiteboard and I wrote down on the whiteboard, you know, it had those little faces on the bottom to judge your, your pain level with, you know, smiley face being one on the left and, uh, you know, an angry face on the far right being a 10. And I just drew a line through all the faces and I wrote, just let me die. But when I was off the drugs, I thought, you know, I'm just going to try and run. And if it hurts, it hurts. Big, you know, no big deal. But if it doesn't hurt, I'm going to pursue this. And I ran around the lake three miles, you know, the, the trail that I had ridden with my dad being a born and raised Austinite, and I got runner's high. And I thought, holy crap, I love this feeling. I'm going to keep this going. And that's Mike Thompson when he was at the low and high points of his life on this episode of Time to Sing Your Song. I started this podcast because I am inspired by people who've had real challenges or obstacles in their lives somehow found a way to create a great life for themselves. I found that these people are able to offer practical advice and even steps that we can all take when we get knocked on our ass. And if my conversations with my clients and others are any indication, we all need a bit of inspiration nowadays. If you're feeling down or you believe that the world is out to get you or even that there is no hope, today's conversation is well worth your time. You see... Mike was diagnosed with leukemia when he was 10. After several surgeries, chemo, radiation, and two bone marrow transplants, he was able to beat it. But radiation from the first bone marrow transplant left him with cancer in his jaw. How can that be? He beat leukemia, and now he had a second form of cancer, which required a 12-and-a-half-hour surgery to reconstruct his jaw. After a follow-up procedure went wrong, he told his mom that he just wanted to die. Inspired by his family and letters from his classmates, he was once again able to beat cancer. But cancer was just the first obstacle. The pain in his jaw and the medical system all too willing to medicate him left Mike addicted to a litany of prescription meds, headlined by opioids. After seven years, Mike was able to beat his opioid addiction through rehab and once again, the support of family and friends. Mike is now singing his song. Shortly after getting out of rehab, Mike rediscovered his love for sport. He started with a three-mile jog around a lake in Austin. That compelled him to get back on his bike, and the rest is history. He has since competed in the Ironman in Kauai and summited Mount Kilimanjaro, all while raising money for cancer. He even got his master's degree in communication studies from Texas State University. He has a job that celebrates his purpose, and he's married to the love of his life. And now he's coming out with his first book, Finding Good, where he shares his recipe for living your best life. As you listen to our conversation, pause and really think about these three questions. Are you really being selfish and putting yourself first? I know this question seems a bit self-centered, but Mike is right. If you don't take care of yourself, can you really be there for your family and friends? Second, are you scratching that itch, doing that thing that brings you joy? In my experience, most aren't. They are in a career that they find dreadful and unrewarding. And finally, do you find yourself taking 
everything way too seriously. I certainly have in my life. And if you do, consider how you can use the power of humor like Mike did to ease the pain and tension in his life. If you're enjoying these conversations, go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and give Time to Sing Your Song a five-star rating. Please also share your thoughts as well. It really helps in bringing awareness of these awesome stories like Mike's. And if you're really inspired, share the podcast, this interview with your family, friends, and colleagues. As I get deeper on this journey, it is becoming clearer by the day that Time to Sing Your Song is a platform for ordinary people to share their stories of how they overcame gnarly obstacles to live a life that they only dreamed about. And what's crazy is the variety of stories that are coming to me, but I am always in the need of new ones. So if you have one or you know someone who does, reach out to me. Easiest way is to send me an email at mike at time to sing your song.com, or you can send a direct message on social media, Mike Kearney on LinkedIn and mkearney33 on Twitter. Okay, let's get to it. My conversation with Mike Thompson. Mike Thompson, welcome to Time to Sing Your Song. Thanks for having me, Mike. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this one. You might take us back to when you were a kid and you were diagnosed with cancer. Yeah, I, I lived the you know traditional young middle class American boy life. I played baseball, played soccer, uh, did as much homework and, and tried to keep up with school as much as I could. Um, I actually love school. I love learning. And normal, you know, 10 year old boy in the middle of soccer season when started to develop some flu like symptoms in uh, the fall of 1995. And it took weeks for us to figure out what was going on. And, you know, I'd had tests, you know, blood tests done and every culture, every biopsy, every, you know, know, little diagnostic test you can think of to see if it was strep or flu or some kind of a virus. And some final blood work uh, determined that it was leukemia, that my white blood cells were essentially attacking, attacking my body and I was diagnosed with acute myeloid leukemia. Um, M4EO was the specific uh, type of leukemia that uh, I had, and it was rare in children and certainly um, you know, more daunting to hear because there was not back then a, a high success rate of, of beating it for pediatric cases. And so it you know, thrusted my family and me into a world of, uh, you know, the immediate unknown where growing up, I had a concept of what cancer was. I knew that you got really sick and that you lost your hair and that people died from it. But beyond that, I had no, you know, real personal experience as a, as a 10 year old to understand what it fully meant until the day I was diagnosed on October 13th of 1995. How did they communicate it to you? I, Cause I, I, I don't even know if I could put myself in your position, but you know, as a 10 year old boy, like you said, you know, life is kind of new. You're just living your life, playing sports, going to school. And like you said, you don't even necessarily know exactly what cancer is. So how do they break that news to you? Do you remember? I do. And I remember the doctor, uh, his name was Dr. Jim Sharp. He's since retired now. Uh, and we still keep in touch actually, but he was kind of a, a cross, um, at least appearance-wise, between uh, I'd say like Anthony Hopkins and Paul Newman. So <laughs> really good-looking, um, you know, slightly older uh, doctor, very soft-spoken, 
And although, you know, I was 10 years old and, you know, my, my parents, uh, my mom was there with me in the hospital when we were told what it was, he talked to me still. And so I just remember really appreciating that. And, you know, I'm 38 years old right now. I was 10 when I was diagnosed, but even back when I was 10, I always had a, a little bit higher level of maturity than a lot of my, my friends at the time. And I, I don't know the reason for that. I've always kind of been an old soul. Um, but I also had parents that, you know, kind of treated me, uh, certainly as a child, but, but more as like a, a friend and a peer. Um, you know, my dad it taught me about, you know, Led Zeppelin and ACDC when it came to music. And we watched classic movies like, you know, Caddyshack and, and Stripes and <laughs> big fan of, of comedy. So I had a higher understanding of, you know, the, the more, you know, gravity-based uh, situations like cancer. So I remember Dr. Sharp, um, you know, explaining what it was to both my mom and me the day that I was diagnosed. And I don't remember the words specifically, but I do know that it was not the, the typical, um, I don't want to call it generic phrase, but a lot of people, when they share their cancer diagnosis, which is, is traumatic and very personal for every person, but uh, there's often the common phrase that says, I, I will never forget the day when I heard the words, you have cancer. And it wasn't like that. It wasn't that cut and dry. I remember Dr. Sharp needing to explain it, saying like, Mike uh, has a form of leukemia, um, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, it's a case that's called M4EO. And uh, specifically, his white blood cells are attacking the rest of the healthy cells in his body. It's a form of blood cancer. It can be treated with chemotherapy. It can be treated with bone marrow transplantation, and it can be treated with radiation. We just need to figure out the best case scenario for his diagnosis and his level of health. And so right then, you know, that day I was trying to negotiate with, you know, the, both the doctor and my family of like, okay, when, when, when can I go home? What's the soonest time that I can get back to living a normal life. And so from October 13th of 95 to February of 96, I was in the hospital every single day. Um, I did not leave the hospital as we battled through, you know, the induction round of chemotherapy. Um, I developed a, a fungal infection in my nose. Uh, the fungus was called aspergillus and it's the second deadliest fungal infection you can have. And we, every human being is exposed to it. We have it, but because my counts were so low, it attacked my body, uh, specifically my nasal cavity. So had, you know, 20 something surgeries, um, you know, tons of chemotherapy, and I was just completely bottomed out over the holidays of 95 into 96. And, you know, you know, we'll get to, you know, more of the details a little further on, but yeah, whenever you, whenever I was in the hospital, you know, I, I try to negotiate very quickly, like, when can I get back to normal life? Why didn't I appreciate the life that I was living before all this happened? And, and what does it mean for the future that I wanted? And kind of revisiting the idea that I was a little bit more mature than most 10-year-olds. Like, I dreamed of, you know, growing old and becoming a father and participating in sports the way that, you know, my family did with me. Like, teaching my son or daughter how to play catch, uh, you know, being involved in their life with school, with extracurricular activities and supporting their, their you know, kind of adventures. So yeah, hearing those words, you know, you have cancer, that wasn't really how it was uh, explained to me, but it, the gravity of the situation was still, you know, incredibly heavy hearing that I had a disease that would 
had the very strong possibility of taking my life. We talked about your desire to get life back to normal, but can you talk about how you were feeling when you were in the hospital for several months? Kind of uh, an amalgam of everything, really. Uh, fear, certainly. Uh, depression, frustration, anger, sadness. Uh, definitely denial. Um, you know, kind of like those five stages of grief, except that yeah, I wasn't dead yet. Um, but I, I wondered what I had done to deserve it. And growing up, I was uh, involved, you know, in the church. I you know, was religious, considered myself a Christian. And I still consider myself spiritual, but I had um, just the way that I was raised in the church that I went to. Um, it was portrayed to me that, you know, kind of everything happens for a reason or, you know, God has a reason for anything. And, you know, now, obviously, 28 years later, <laughs> looking back on it, uh, I realized that there, there is no rhyme or reason for a cancer diagnosis. Uh, you certainly wrestle with it and you try to understand it and comprehend it. But for me, I've lost a lot of friends to the disease, um, many of which were when I was young. And you know, there are kids slightly older, slightly younger than me that are no longer here with us. And I, I knew that it was a possibility that I would also you know, be gone, be dead. And so wrestling with that at the age of 10 was, was very challenging because you're trying to reconcile, you know, did you do something to deserve this? Was there something you could have done when you were younger? But at the age of 10, I didn't really have enough time to engage in any type of behavior or, you know, uh, health habits that would have contributed to it. It was just the nature of, of my blood. It wasn't hereditary. It wasn't, um, you know, anything environmental, at least to our knowledge, it just happened. And so even at the age of, you know, 10, 11, and 12, as I'm, you know, being hospitalized and taken away from my, my family, my friends, sports, you know, fun things, uh, yeah, certainly I was, I was sad and angry and depressed. But at the same time, there was the concept that, you know, a life was still possible after it. And luckily, my, my mom, my dad, my sisters, they didn't really give the option give me the option of giving up. And, mm. and and right before I was diagnosed, the movie Apollo 13 came out and I was always still am a big fan of aviation and, uh, and aeronautics and space flight. And there's a quote in that you know movie, which is a true story based on the Apollo 13 astronauts having a, an explosion during a routine cryostar and their mission when before it was to land on the moon was just to get home safely. And Gene Krantz, who's portrayed by the actor Ed Harris in the movie at one point says, failure is not an option. We're going to do whatever it takes to get these guys home. And that kind of became my mantra. Um, my dad had printed it out, you know, on a, on a big, you know, stretch thread of paper, put it above my hospital bed and said, failure is not an option. Uh, and so that really helped kind of cope with the, the anger and the frustration and the denial to say, like, you know what, we're not going to just sit down. We're going to we're going to fight for this. So how would you take that experience in that your parents, your sister were there for you? And, and to quote you, like failure is not an option. What would you tell other families that are going through hardships like this? Because it sounds like, and maybe I'm leading you to the answer, but it sounds like what you're saying is integral to where you are today was a faith that they had that you were going to be okay in the end. The... The idea or the concept of failure is not an option meant that we were going to do whatever it took to stay alive. And that meant 
you know, weighing different treatment options. That meant taking my medication on time. That meant, you know, staying hydrated, moving around, you know, not, not staying sedentary so that the cancer, you know, couldn't, couldn't get me, so to speak. And my mom, who's, you know, all of five feet tall and just, you know, incredibly beautiful woman, human being, you know, one of my best friends in the world, she would always say, you know, I, I was in labor with you for 24 hours. The least you can do is fight through this because I didn't go through that just for you to give up now. And so there was some humor attached to it. And right. fortunately, you know, both my mom and my dad and my sisters, we had really relied on humor even before I was diagnosed to, you know, cope with, with family challenges. My uh, grandma, Millie, my, my dad's mom uh, had passed away just a few months before I was diagnosed. And we kind of joked that, well, you know, if, if Millie found out that I had cancer, that probably would have killed her anyway. So, you know, we had an angel in, in heaven shining down upon us to make sure that I was going to get through um, the challenges uh, ahead. But, you know, certainly relied on humor um, and, you know, the idea of, of my mom being in labor for 24 hours of not giving up. But again, as long as the doctors told us that there was a chance at beating this, I was, we were going to do whatever it took. And that meant, yes, we're going to undergo chemotherapy. We're going to undergo um, surgeries. Finances were obviously an issue because, you know, cancer cases are expensive and insurance uh, only covers so much. And I think within the first year or two of my diagnosis, we reached our, you know, a million dollar cap on our insurance and how to find a new insurance wow. company. So there's all those dynamics that, you know, a lot of people don't quite understand until they face a cancer diagnosis of like, what is it going to take to stay alive? What is it going to take to beat this? And again, if I didn't have the strength of, of my mom and my dad saying, no, you're going to, you know, you're going to drink water, you're going to take your meds, you're going to get up and walk around the nurse's station and, and do physical therapy, whatever we can do to keep this disease at bay, we're going to do it. You know, what I find interesting is why in situations like this, you know, where you've got an illness, I've lost both of my parents, but it, it's so odd that in situations like that, humor is one of the tools to cope and to get through it. Yet in day-to-day -day life, we oftentimes don't use humor and stuff that is so trivial compared to what you go through. And so I think one of the things that I'm taking away and, and I've personally experienced just that bring a little bit of levity into your life. Um, because if it can be such a powerful tool, you know, when things are really dark, just think about what it could do for your life just on a day-to-day -day basis. And it sounds like humor, in addition to this belief that things were going to be okay, and also kind of positive momentum that your family brought to your situation was key to, key to where you are today. Absolutely. I mean, you know, humor, you can use any cliche. You can say, you know, don't take life too seriously. No one gets out alive or you know, the minute you're born, you're dying. And I think even now, especially now with, with how popular and, and mainstream social media is, is that, you know, we lose sight of things that are important in, in terms of finding purpose in life. And we can sometimes take things too seriously. And for us, for, you know, my family, just by nature of my dad, you know, he, he didn't have um, a father. He, his, he had a father, obviously, but right. my dad's father passed away when my dad was only nine months old. So it was just him and, and Grandma Millie um, being born and raised in Chicago and then moving to Austin. And my dad always just had a, a great sense of humor, my mom as well. And 
like I said before, we really relied heavily on that to um, before before truly understanding that there is, you know, now research and data that shows that, you know, being happy and, and smiling and, and humor can improve quality of life. It just felt good for us. It felt natural for us to kind of poke fun at the situation and say, um, you know, well, at least I don't have to worry about homework right now. Or, um, you know, when, when I was uh, you know, sick and, and nauseated, whenever I was having a good day and I wasn't nauseated, I would, you know, play tricks on the nurses. Like I'd draw like a, a, a funny face on my stomach and say that my stomach was hurting. They'd come in and it was, you know, kind of dancing with the boy who cried wolf thing, but um, they'd lift up my shirt and, you know, listen to my stomach and they'd see the, the smiley face or whatever and, um, and just start laughing. And so it kind of gave us encouragement to seek out those moments when we could find that levity. Um, and something that you said a minute ago, you said things are trivial. There's so much in life that's, that's trivial. And even though when I was back 10, 11 years old, I didn't really have challenges or, or, you know, tasks to complete like oil changes or paying bills or, you know, buying a house. I, I understood them and I longed for them because I would much prefer to, you know, need to mow the lawn and, and pay bills and deal with adult stuff than take, you know, my, my chemotherapy or, or get a radiation treatment or bone marrow transplant. And so leaning on humor, you know, really uh, helped get through the dark times by encouraging us to uh, you know, always see the light of day. And as long as I had air in my lungs and, and the ability to to talk and communicate with people around me, humor was going to be a, a big part of that. And it, to this day, I still heavily rely on on humor as a, as a coping mechanism, sure, but also as a way to lift people up and, and show them like, hey, you know, don't take life too seriously because we don't get out alive. So, you know, focus on what's important, which is developing relationships with, with good people and, and leaving the world better than you found it. You know what I find interesting? I think I've talked about this in the past. I've certainly written about it. It's that in these moments, like what you went through, it's so easy to figure out what's important in life and what's trivial. The challenge, and I've actually talked to other uh, folks that have gone through cancer like you did uh, and, and then come out better on the other end. What they've oftentimes said is, you know, I get back to that point where I then start focusing on the trivial stuff. And, and the question that is like, the one that I would love to get to is how do you maintain that sense of what's important when maybe you're not backed up against the wall where you've got, you know, potentially a, a terminal disease? I don't know if you have an answer for that, but that is something that I am fascinated by because we all, every single person has a shitty thing that happens to them in life. And they're like, Oh my God, I finally have clarity. Now I know what's important. And then time goes by and then they lose that clarity. And it would be great if we could figure out a way, you know, in uh, moments where you're not in despair, where you could actually cling on to that notion. That's a great question. And I don't know if I can answer the, the how, but I can answer the why I, I look at life this way. And it's simply because when you're told at a young age that you won't live to be old, an old age, Right. everything becomes trivial and right. you start thinking about like, okay, well, I, I was told that I wouldn't live to be, you know, 18 if I relapsed after the first diagnosis and I relapsed after the first diagnosis and I relapsed again and I relapsed again. And, you know, then I, a, a tumor developed, you know, caused by radiation from my first bone marrow transplant, which, you know, we can, we can get back into the chronology of my journey. But when you're told that and you keep, living 
every day, you you just start automatically focusing on the good things in life. You're like, you know what? I was told I would be dead and I'm not. So I'm going to live every day the best that I can. And, and it was real. It was visceral seeing and, and knowing friends, young, young kids like Emma Duke and Billy Rutledge and Kelly Davidson were all, you know, young kids that I was battling cancer with. And, you know, my family got to know their family and they passed away. And so it was very real and very raw knowing that that, that could happen to me. And it kind of uh, reminds me of a, a quote from, you know, one of my, my favorite old movies. It's Grumpy or Old Men. Um, and Burgess Meredith plays, you know, the, the senior, senior dad, he's the, the father to, to Jack Lemon and they're sitting down on the couch. He's sitting with his son he's, you know, 94 years old, I think. And, and the quote goes, um, they're sitting on the couch and Jack Lemon gives, uh, gives his dad a, a beer and Burgess Meredith takes a sip of it. And he says, what the, what, what the heck, what the heck is this? And he's like, well, you can say fuck if you want. I don't know if that's where you're going, but you <laughs> could say that. <laughs> well, in so many words, he said, what, what the fuck is this? And, uh, Jack Lemon says, well, what do you mean? Like it's like, it's light beer. Ariel, my wife's a, a little concerned about my cholesterol. So she's got me drinking light beer and, and Virgis Meredith responds by saying, you know, gee, I weigh 98 goddamn pounds and you're giving me this slopping foam. He's like, well, yeah, dad, I'm trying to take care of myself. And, and Burgess Meredith replies, let me tell you something now, Johnny. Last Thursday, I turned 94 years old and I've never exercised a day in my life. Every morning I wake up and I smoke a cigarette and I eat five strips of bacon. And for lunch, I eat a bacon sandwich and for a midday snack. And then he waits for Jack Lemon to reply. He goes, bacon. He's like, bacon, a whole damn plate. And I usually drink my dinner. And he takes a sip of the beer and he says, now, according to all of them flat belly experts, Johnny, I should have took a dirt nap like 30 years ago. But each day comes and goes and I'm still here and they keep dying. It just goes to show you, huh? And then they have this, this hilarious exchange where it's like, goes to show you what? And he goes, huh? He says, goes to show you what? And he's like, well, it just goes to what the heck are you talking about? And John replies, well, you said you eat bacon, you drink beer, and you smoke cigarettes, and you outlive all the experts. And Burgess Meredith replies, yeah. And Johnny says, well, I thought there might be a moral to the story. And he's like, no, there ain't no moral. I just like that story. And so in that whole exchange, you know, he's talking about being 94 and not really engaging in the behaviors or the, the uh, you know, traditions of, of living a long life of, you know, taking care of yourself, drinking water, avoiding smoking cigarettes, eating healthy, and he outlives all the experts. And when you start looking at life that way and you start thinking, you know, yes, tragedy happens from the biblical, you know, religious lens. I grew up, you know, being taught that there's sin in this world, that there's suffering and there's really no rhyme or reason to it. Good things um, happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. As long as you maintain autonomy of, of what you're doing to be selfish, to you know, live your best life, and then using that life to inspire others to do the same, you know, surrounding yourself with people that are also you know, selfish um, in a good way, and then using that to leave the world better than you found it, that's, that's purpose for me. 
And, and that's what I decided to do, you know, at that young age of 10, 11, 12, when I was fighting cancer is slowly promising myself and, and my concept of God saying, if I beat this, I'm going to do what I can to affect positive change in the world. And, and that's what I've done since then. Mike, you haven't finished your cancer story, but you also became addicted to opioids. Can you share how your cancer story came to an end and how it led you into an opioid addiction? Fortunately, I can give you, you know, the Cliff Notes version of, of the cancer journey. So October 95 to February 96 is the you know, first um, battle with the leukemia. And they warned, uh, you know, I got checkups every week and then every month, and then it would go to six months and then a year. Well, I never made it to the three-month mark because in uh, late uh, June, or like late May, early June of 96, they took a blood test, found out that the, the cancer cells were back. So I was in remission, relapsed. Next step is bone marrow transplantation. Summer of 96, had more chemotherapy, uh, more radiation in preparation for um bone marrow transplant. And sorry, not more radiation. First time getting radiation. Luckily, um, you know, whether you want to call it a blessing or, or just sheer luck, found 32 perfect matches on the National Bone Marrow Registry. Uh, physicians at Cook Children's in Fort Worth, where we decided to have the transplantation, picked a donor. Uh, the donors uh, kept anonymous until after uh, a year of in survivorship. And that just ensures that the parties don't develop an emotional relationship should the patient not survive. Right. So selected a donor, uh, underwent my first bone marrow transplant of September uh, in September of '96. A uh, year later, did accept the the phone call of of meeting my donor. He ended up being a, a 32 year old uh, male from Illinois, from Chicago. We we uh, finally chatted on the phone after we were introduced by the bone marrow registry people. Uh, his name is Steve Girding, and he, his family and my family are now, you know, intertwined forever. Um, got to talk to him and, and explain, you know, what a gift it was to, to have a gift of life from him and that his selflessness, his generosity, you know, quite literally saved my life. And so Steve was, was in our lives, and we talked regularly after a, a year in the fall of 97 when I relapsed again, and that would require another transplant. So Luckily, they had bone marrow frozen from the first one so that Steve didn't have to donate uh, again. And they just gave me another transplant. And, and the first transplant was incredibly traumatic. I you know, had graft versus host disease where your body rejects the marrow. I had uh, my, my counts were bottomed out and I started having seizures. One night, my temperature got up to 107 degrees. And, you know, my mom thought I was going to die that night. And again, you know, she absolutely believed in the power of prayer, but also we believed in doing what was necessary to stay alive. You know, bathing myself in an ice bath to keep my fever down, hydrating as much as I could, maneuvering, getting my, my heart rate up and my blood flow up. And luckily throughout all that time, my strong heart of being a soccer player and a baseball player really helped drive the engine of, of healing. And so second transplant was, you know, half as difficult as the first one. Uh, graft versus host wasn't as bad. And, and truly that transplant is the one that quote unquote stuck. <laughs> it wasn't long, um, probably eight or nine months after that transplant that I returned back to school again. And fortunately had stayed up in school with a homebound teacher named Get Debbie Gamble and my uh, the faculty at Redeemer Lutheran, my elementary and middle school. 
and was you know prepared and, and ready to be a normal high school freshman in uh, the fall of 99 when yet again uh, developed a, a little bit of a bump and, and experienced some pain on the lower right side of my jaw and ended up finding out that it was uh, osteosarcoma, a malignant bone cancer that was caused by radiation from my first bone marrow transplant. And just like you know, needing to make decisions on how to treat the leukemia, selecting the right medical team and medical center, my mom, you know, kicked into high gear and researching what the best method was to, to remove this tumor and, and, and get it quickly before it spread to my brain or my lungs or, you know, wherever else it, it might have metastasized. And after, you know, getting half a dozen opinions, we settled on MD Anderson because not only is it the, you know, renowned cancer institution in the world, but they were the only medical team that said, you know, we're going to fully reconstruct his jaw because we don't think we can get a big enough margin by going from the inside. And of course that meant, you know, the integrity of my jaw was going to be gone. Essentially later we're going to have to reconstruct it. I was going to look different, but again, it's what my mom um, believed and what I ended up believing that this is the way that my life is going to be saved by fully reconstructing it. So March of 2000, uh, five years after my initial diagnosis, I underwent a 12 and a half hour facial reconstruction. They used a fibula for my left leg to reconstruct it. And you can imagine the, the trauma of having, you know, your, your face taken off. Mm-hmm. And I was in ICU for two weeks. And I just remember, you know, at times before that, you know, through every individual battle, whether it was the first bout with leukemia, each transplant, or, you know, any kind of, you know, bottomed out uh, feeling that I experienced, I had a couple times wished that I was dead. And I told my mom, like, I'm tired, I don't want to fight anymore. But it wasn't until two weeks or so after the facial reconstruction, when doctors were going into remove a couple more teeth. They had already taken out the whole, almost the entire lower right-hand part of my jaw, teeth included. So three other teeth had gotten infected and they were going to remove those. And they were also going to uh, place a feeding tube directly into my stomach. Uh, after the reconstruction, they had put it, um, threaded it through my nose and, you know, were giving me like Pedialyte and Ensure and, and whatever I could have just to stay you know, nourished. Uh, because I couldn't eat, obviously, my jaw was wired shut, and I had a, a tracheotomy going through my throat, so I couldn't swallow. So you're going to re- remove the teeth, clear out the infection, and put a feeding tube directly into my stomach. Well, they couldn't uh, put me out with anesthesia because they were worried that you know I, I would get my heart rate would get too low and that you know I would I would die during the procedure. So they sedated me, and I woke up before they finished. And, you know, I blindfold a rag over my eyes so they couldn't see that I was awake and I was, I was strapped down so that if I did wake up, I couldn't, you know, interfere with the procedure. But I woke up and I felt everything when they put in the feeding tube. They inflated my stomach. They, you know, I could feel the, the pierce of the scalpel as they started to put it in there. And then I started throwing up what the, the contents of my stomach, whatever was left of the, of the insurer, I started throwing that up into my my tracheotomy. So the trach got clogged. You know, I started to feel the vomit come out of my mouth through my wired shut jaw. And in that moment, cannot express to you how much I wanted to die. 
they sedated me. I woke up three days, three days later and my mom, you know, kind of <laughs> ruefully asked like, how are you doing? And because I couldn't talk, I had this little whiteboard and I wrote down on the whiteboard, you know, it had those little faces on the bottom to judge your, your pain level with, you know, smiley face being one on the left and, uh, you know, an angry face on the far right being a 10. And I just drew a line through all the faces and I wrote, just let me die. And tears streamed down her face. And then, you know, she pulled out that, that trick again of saying, like, remember, remember 24 hours of labor, you know, you can't give up on me. But then she also had, you know, big box of all of these letters that my friends at my high school had written for me, like 700 letters that they had written saying that they missed me. They wanted me to fight through it. And she was saving that for an opportune moment. And, and that was it for me. Right after the moment where I told her I wanted to die, she gave me 700 reasons to live. In addition to obviously, you know, not letting my mom down. Fast forward, you know, a couple of years after that, just the trauma of having your face reconstructed and, and being on some sort of pharmaceutical, you know, pain medicine for five, six, seven years straight, the, the pain that was left after I beat everything and after I started to, you know, kind of return to some semblance of, of strength and athleticism after the cancer, the pain was just too much to, to bear. And so, you know, went back to MD Anderson and saw pain management, the, the department there, and they just gave me unlimited opioids. I had, I got up to like 300 Norco per day, which are, you know, 10 milligram, 10 slash three, 325 milligrams of uh, the, the hydrocodone, the opioid with Tylenol. And I took 10 of those a day. I took uh, four to six gabapentin a day, which is a neuropathic pain med. Uh, Xanax, um, usually some sort of anti-inflammatory. And then I always had uh, something stronger like Percocet or, or oxycodone um, to help with the really bad days. And that was essentially my life from, you know, 2002, 2003, um, junior, senior in high school um, until, gosh, probably 2007, 2008. Um, that's, that's what I did for six six and a half, almost seven years is just take pain medication every single day. And that was really the time when the opioid crisis was beginning in America. And looking back on it since then, I've, you know, I've got a master's degree now. Um, as part of that, I, you know, learned about the persuasive tactics that pharmaceutical companies engaged in to, you know, persuade doctors to prescribe those opioids. And I was, you know, a, a victim of it. And did I have a reason to take them? Absolutely. But I now know looking back that cancer took five years of my life and being addicted to drugs took an additional almost seven. This is about the heaviest five minutes I think I've had on this podcast or in life. And, and quite frankly, Mike, one of the reasons why I started this was because everybody has a story where they've gotten knocked on their ass. You literally got knocked on your ass for... 12 years in that moment that you described of where you just wanted to die. And, and it was the letters from, how many did you say 700 kids in your school? Mm -hmm. Is it 700? That is amazing. I mean, wow. Uh, but that's what got you through. And then, and then you get through the cancer and then you run up against opioids. I'm curious just because, you know, opioids is such a, a big deal. It's, a, it's actually not even um, as big of a national story as I actually believe it should be. I think, um, Back in 2020, 107,000 
young people died uh, because of drugs um, and opioid is a, a significant portion of that. And so to me, it's, it's ironic in that we've gone through, you know, COVID and, and some other times where we make a huge deal and I'm not downplaying COVID. So don't everybody send me messages, but it, it, it's, it's odd to me that, you know, our kids are struggling. People are struggling with, with drugs and it's just not that big of a conversation. I was in Portland over the weekend and just to see what's going on there with, you know, everybody in the streets that are doing fentanyl and heroin and, and, um, you know, other hard drugs, it's just sad. But, but I guess what I'd love to ask you, because, um, I've never, I don't know if I've ever taken what would be constituted as a, as a opioid. Can you describe what it feels like when you're taking an opioid? I've heard that you just feel numb to the world. You don't feel high or low. What was your experience? I think the first thing that I want to do is kind of go back to the times when I was in the hospital fighting for my life and everything hurt all at once, whether it was chemotherapy, you know, making my skin feel like I had a total body Indian burn to just my bones aching to, uh, you know, post-operative discomfort, you know, having my nasal cavity excavated to get the aspergillus out or, uh, you know, fast, fast forward to the facial reconstruction, just, you know, if, if you've had any form of dental work, you know how painful it is and, and just downright uh, excruciating and, and almost um, torturous, uh, you know, oral, oral pain can be. When I was given something to help with it, whether it was, you know, Demerol or, or morphine or Versed, you know, intravenous narcotics, it's instant relief. And, you know, it, it's just, if I can just be quite candid, it's, it's a, an incredible feeling. It's, it's all of the, you know, endorphins that you get from, uh, you know, a, a stretching first thing in the morning or, or getting a massage or, you know, some sort of physical stimulation where you just feel euphoria. It's that times, you know, a thousand. And when you're hurting and you get that immediate relief, there's, there's two things that happen. There's a, a physical dependency that can develop because, you know, your body has pain receptors. And when you are given a narcotic, an opioid, it latches onto those pain receptors and, and blocks the pain from happening. Then there's also the, the mental, the psychological dependency where, you know, it's a form of comfort that you know is there waiting for you. And so it, I'm not going to suggest that, you know, I would have done anything different by getting intravenous pain meds. Um, and it just as a side note, you know, my, my grandmother uh, passed away just in the past few weeks and, and she had been uh, addicted to opioids for, you know, the better part of, of three or four decades. And so, you know, I, I, again, I don't know if that was uh, hereditary or if I had a propensity for being uh, or having an addictive personality um, or even, you know, a, a physical uh, tendency to be addicted. It was definitely the relief, the immediacy of comfort that came from pain meds when I was in the hospital. Move that into oral you know, opioids, oral pain meds, and the ease of getting them post-cancer from, from various pain clinics, whether it was you know, at MD Anderson or even local ones here in Austin that I transitioned to long after the disease, there was still that instant relief. And to this day, my jaw still hurts. My leg hurts. You know, I've got... Uh, atrophy and, and just, you know, lingering scars and scar tissue that are, they're uncomfortable. 
Um, we'll get to, you know, I think some of the points in the podcast of, you know, the, the triumphs and victories that I had through Ironman training and, and, you know, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro and, and fitness, um, accomplishments that have kind of replaced the, the need for opioids for comfort, because I get so much comfort and, and euphoria from working out and being fit that that's kind of my drug now, but there's an immediate comfort that, that comes with opioids and, once you get into the realm of taking them long-term, then you absolutely need them just to feel normal. And that's what happened with me. I had taken them for so long that not only did my jaw hurt worse when I wouldn't take them because I had developed so many pain receptors by taking so much pain medication that once I stopped taking it, all those pain receptors were telling my brain and my central nervous system, we need it, we need it, we need it, we need it. This is This hurts, this hurts, this hurts. And it was just like sent off all these alarms. And I knew that, all right, just pop a pill. All that goes away. Then you get into the withdrawals of, you know, cold sweats, hot sweats, um, you know, diarrhea, nausea, itchy eyes, um, restless legs. Like essentially if you've, for you or any of, of our listeners, if you've been hungover, multiply that by a thousand and, yeah. and you, you know, you can't get to sleep. You're, you're laying down, but you're uncomfortable it's just this suspended state of discomfort. So think about how powerful that is when you know that, you know, popping a pill or, or shooting something up your vein um, can take that discomfort away. What I know more than anything is that in this world that we live in, you know, mental health is incredibly important, but people will medicate and people will, will seek out various therapies. Some of them are holistic. Uh, my wife, Kendall, is an acupuncturist and she believes in you know holistic remedies of acupuncture and massage and physical therapy and meditation and yoga and Pilates and all those things that are not um, you know pharmaceutically uh, originated. But at the same time, you know, especially in America, we champion alcohol. You know, cheers, you know, to whatever beer commercial it is, or you know, come have a margarita. And and I I love margaritas. I love tequila. It's 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 just something that. <laughs> I love to do with friends is to have a, a, a cocktail and celebrate something in life. But we champion that so much that we forget that like, there's a lot of people that struggle with alcoholism. We kind of believe that pharmaceuticals or, or prescriptions that are given by doctors because they're doctors, it's what's good for us. And there's this kind of disconnect there. Um, there's a lot of contributing factors in society right now. I think that force people to medicate, whether it's, Social media, you know, offering an, an unlimited uh, amount of curated experiences that create FOMO for people or, or, you know, depression or anxiety that they're not living the life that other people are portraying. That adds to the need to, to self-medicate. We have challenges with, you know, work-life balance, with kids, with um, the economy, with politics, um, you know, wars in other countries, hunger, um, famine, uh, weather, you know, natural disasters, various tragedies. There's an endless amount of things that prompt people into self-medicating. And what I do want to, to get to at some point in the podcast is my advocacy for, for cannabis. Again, a growing body of evidence showing that cannabis in many cases, in myriad situations, is the more effective, uh, far safer remedy for things like chronic pain, spasticity, neuropathy, 
um, you know, tremors and ticks, seizures than almost any pharmaceutical drug on uh, the planet. Additionally, you know, alcohol, which was originally part of the stigmatization with cannabis, we all, you know, we know that through prohibition and we know what happened when it was prohibited, bootleggers came around and started making alcohol, um, you know, illegally. And somehow alcohol became mainstream again. And they said, ah, we'll, we'll regulate it. But cannabis stayed in that, you know, sort of stigmatized, um, scheduled um, category. And so thinking about all that and, you know, kind of going back to higher level, the reason why we have, you know, alcoholism and, and drug abuse and drug addiction and, and overdoses right now, in my opinion, is the stigmatization of cannabis first and foremost, and the kind of acceptance that, you know, alcohol is just a part of our culture as are, you know, other drugs. And people kind of joke about it and make fun like, oh, yeah, like I got through grad school, you know, snorting cocaine or, uh, you know, taking Adderall or, or, or Ritalin or whatever it would be, by the way you know, don't take that out of context. I've never done those things, but there's a kind of, you know, joke about what people can do to get access to illegal drugs. Whereas in my research and studies through grad school and my general interest in, you know, drug abuse and self-medication in general, the countries that have legalized drugs like Uruguay, like Portugal, that have not necessarily fully legalized, but decriminalized them and provided a safe haven for people to self-medicate through, you know, clean needles and pure legal drugs. They're seeing things like a drop in crime, um, a decrease in overdoses, a de decrease in overdose deaths. And right now, at least in America, I see a huge deficiency in mental health support and allowing people to medicate safely and, and in a healthy um, manner. And Championing, championing the the wrong substances like you know alcohol and pharmaceutical drugs over something natural like cannabis um, or even you know things like acupuncture, massage, and physical therapy. So I am, in my opinion, sort of a, a an, <laughs> an informal expert in drug abuse and drug addiction, right. knowing my personal experience and then what I've done in academia to research why these things happen. In a book that I have coming out, you know, it obviously describes the chronology of my cancer story all the way through the addiction, um, but also just my general perspective of how people can be an advocate for the more natural, um, you know, less harmful remedies that they can engage in, like, like cannabis or massage or acupuncture. And that's kind of my mission now is, yes, to still be an advocate for, for the cancer community. Um, and, you know, obviously op opioid addiction and, and creating awareness around uh, drug abuse, but more than anything, just encouraging people to always seek out the best possible paths towards prosperity. And I think the cancer and the drug addiction create the perfect kind of journey for me to have that perspective and to share with others to say, we're more in control of our lives and futures than we think. And as long as we have air in our lungs and food in our stomachs and the ability to think, then we have the ability to, you know, find answers for the problems in life. Wow. So what I want to do is just pause because I want to figure out what was that moment that when you were having, I was going to say having problems with opioids, you were addicted to opioids, something changed. 
what changed? What allowed you to break that, that addiction and come to the place you're at now? It was, I think it was like a Monday morning. I had just gotten back from a mission trip to Mexico, and this was in summer of 2008, May of 2008. And at that point, I'd been taking opioids essentially every day for about eight years, uh, sorry, a little over six years. Yep. So it's 2008. And I'd gotten back from a mission trip and uh, woken up and my mom was at the kitchen table. And at that time in life, I, I was not living a prosperous life. I you know, bounced back and forth from job to job. I got into legal trouble. I was drinking all the time. You know, if I ran out of meds over a weekend and I, I couldn't get a refill until, you know, Monday, I would just drink. Um, you know, I got a DWI. I spent 30 days in jail at one point. Um, you know, the, one of the hardest things for that my mom had to endure was, yes, the cancer and the addiction, but, you know, leaving me in jail for 30 days so that I, I would understand like, okay, these behaviors aren't necessarily good for my future. Right. And, right. Returned- and here's your mom who had seen you overcome cancer or lived through it for five years, overcome that. Now you've got an opioid addiction and now you're in jail. Yep. You know, I just empathize with your mom going through that. Wow. Well, and, you know, I was still kind of maintaining this, this veil of, you know, I am living a good life after cancer. And it was right, right when social media had kind of, you know, started to, to surface with, you know, Twitter and Facebook. And so I'd, I'd portray this like ideal life of things that I wanted to do. Uh, you know, I had great aspirations of becoming a fighter pilot or, you know, becoming a firefighter or, right. you know, just, just, you know, living these things, but it was all kind of a facade because there was never going to be any chance of me, you know, having a career or starting a family knowing that I would have to go to a pharmacy once a month for the rest of my life. And did and, you know that? I mean, did you know, like when you're, when you're saying you're living this kind of, um, I don't know, you, there's a facade, I guess, if you will. Probably in your gut, you knew that those were probably unrealistic dreams. Well, I had I accepted the reality that I was going to be in pain forever, and that yeah. there would always be just this constant balance of making sure I had enough medication to last me through you know longer months and timing refills so that I didn't run out. And there was just kind of this you know blur for six years of like you know again just being constantly medicated and. Every time I'd get uh, a refill or every time that I would, uh, you know, kind of like start anew and, and have a good week, I'd say, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to get off the drugs. So this, you know, this is it. I'm going to turn my life around. And again, it wasn't until, you know, I, I had legal troubles, but I was still balancing, you know, contributing to, to my church and, and going and doing mission trips in Mexico, which I absolutely loved. You know, I, I developed close relationships with um, friends and mentors at church, but then also, you know, what I called like my Mexican family and, and Saltillo and, and Monterey. And I got back from the trip and my mom had discovered this, you know, bin of empty pill bottles and they were all, you know, all the, the drugs that I had, the, the Norco, the gabapentin, the Xanax, the oxycodone. And she asked point blank that morning when I woke up in her apartment, I, you know, had been sleeping on her couch because I bounced around from from roommate to roommate, never really paid rent with, with anyone because I didn't have steady jobs. So here I am sleeping on my mom's couch, um, you know, 22, 23 years old at this point, you know, dropped out of college in my freshman year because that's when the pain really, really started uh, after they put in dental implants and, and they struck a nerve. 
And so fast forward to 2008, my mom, you know, while I was gone on the mission trip, had cleaned out some stuff in the apartment and found all my pill bottles. I wasn't hiding anything. You know, I, I, I had to keep those pill bottles because they had labels that I could submit for reimbursement because they were transplant related. And we had this fun that anything that was bone marrow transplant related, which the tumor was caused by radiation from the first transplant. So the chronic pain that I experienced because of the reconstruction was caused by the transplant. I'd get reimbursed all the copays. So I kept all the bottles and my mom just point blank asked me when I woke up that morning, are you hurting this bad? And I said, well, yeah, like every time I don't take the meds, you know, I, I want to rip my face off. And before I even knew it, um, she had already, you know, secured a pathway for me to go to rehab, a uh, place called Starlight um, Recovery Center um, in Centerpoint, Texas, just outside of Kerrville, um, Kerrville Comfort Area. And again, up to that point, like I had seen episodes of the show Intervention and every kind of story that I saw in shows like that, that were kind of sensationalized, it was always somebody on heroin or meth or somebody that, you know, drank a, a fifth of vodka in the morning because they were, you know, an alcoholic. There was, there were never any people that were, you know, diagnosed with cancer, endured 75 surgeries, two bone marrow transplants, a facial reconstruction, you know, at the age of 10, starting this cancer journey, and then, you know, being stuck in chronic pain. There were no stories like that. So right. when I heard of the idea of going to rehab, I was like, I'm, I'm not like them. You know, I, I kind of held myself like above other people that I had seen on TV and in news stories that were addicted because I felt like my case was different. But I knew I wanted something to change. I knew that it wasn't sustainable to keep living life the way that I was. And so I agreed that day. I, um, my mom had you know, staged uh, an intervention. Some friends came over that morning and you know we cried we talked we you know i always introduced humor <laughs> and uh that day we left and i i spent the next month uh at starlight uh understanding recovery and addiction and the first week and a half two weeks i was so sick i mean just uh, I endless nausea vomiting cold sweats hot sweats could barely sleep and, you know, all they gave me was, you know, ibuprofen and, and Tylenol for it. Wasn't allowed to have any pharmaceutical drugs besides that. And obviously everything was monitored, monitored um, in a very safe way. They had a medical staff. But what I learned wasn't that all the people that I saw on intervention, you know, were this quote unquote bad people, um, you know, criminals, uh, drug dealers, things like that. I met doctors, lawyers, police officers, firefighters, um, even drug counselors that had become addicted to some substance as a coping mechanism. And I learned that we were all experiencing that same reality of like, we needed something to help with pain. It became unmanageable and we turned to a substance to remedy it. And we were all looking for a change to kind of break that cycle of how long is it going to take where I don't have withdrawals anymore? What can I do to take care of the pain without opioids? Uh, and more than anything, how am I going to return to some sort of life and normalcy so that I'm contributing to society rather than taking away from it or being a burden to it? And that was it. If Again, throughout all the cancers and then through the addiction, if it weren't for, you know, the fortitude of my mom, the support of my family, 
friends around me that had said, you know, we knew Mike before he became a drug addict. We knew Mike when he had a sparkle in his eye and, and positive outlook on life. We want to see that Mike again. And, and if it weren't for my mom intervening and the friends that I had around me to, you know, stop that downfall, then I, I have a feeling I likely would be in jail or dead right now, but I'm not, I'm, you know, a, I have a master's degree. I'm married to my best friend, Kendall. I've got a beautiful house, uh, uh, jobs that I love. I get to produce events. I get to work um, with, you know, different groups uh, in, the, in the fitness community. Um, you know, absolutely get to, to surround myself with amazing people and, and travel to far reaches of the world sharing my story. None of that would have happened if it weren't for that intervention and, and getting off the drug. So, it was the hardest thing I ever had to do outside of cancer, but I'm so glad that I did it. Was there something on your journey to getting clean that had a positive impact that when you look back kind of surprises you? Meaning like it was not something that you thought was going to help you in the moment, but may have been one of the most important things that you did. For me, it was just the idea that that I could live without pain or that, you know, for so long, I had taken the pain meds and I never went more than like two or three days without taking them again. So there was never a time for me to kind of break free of the clutches of addiction. And if it weren't for that time and at the rehab facility where, you know, again, like it was, it took two weeks. They say that the effects of drug addiction, there's a month for every year that you recover when you start to feel normal. So if you take um, drugs for six years, it takes six months to you know not feel the effects of withdrawal anymore. Um, I, I can kind of relate to that. But for me, after those two weeks when, you know, my, this is going to be really candid, but like my, my bowels returned to, to, to normal to normal. normalcy, you know, I wasn't just, you know, shitting diarrhea anymore because, you know, that's what happens when you withdraw from opioids is you, you know, your stomach just turns into overdrive. Part of that's because when you take opioids or other, uh, you know, pain meds, it shuts down your digestive system. And so, you know, two weeks after, you know, being off of the drugs, I started to poop normal again. Um, I started to sleep normal without uh, nightmares. Um, I'd, I'd wake up and I'd feel eager to go for a run or, or go work out. Whereas before, when I was on the drugs, I would never, ever schedule anything first thing in the morning because it took at least 30 minutes for the first dose to kick in. And I couldn't go anywhere without taking that dose. So for me, the, the separation of the most impactful part of overcoming the addiction was finally believing that I could live without them. And I knew my jaw was going to hurt. It still does on occasion. Right now, the weather's about to change in Austin from you know, the endless summer to you know, cooler weather in fall. And for some reason, when that temperature shift happens in the spring or the fall, it just hurts. Um, it's, when it's about to rain. I just feel it in my bones and it hurts more, but it doesn't hurt as bad as when I would try and get off the pain meds for two or three days. And every single pain receptor that I had was clamoring for a narcotic. And so the idea that life was possible after cancer and that life was possible after addiction were the two driving forces behind beating both of them. And if it weren't for that month in rehab that I spent and, and truly felt deep down that I could do this without pain meds, then I'd be dead or in jail right now. So Mike, you, you talked earlier about the fact that you've written a book, Finding Good. I'm curious, what does good mean to you? 
good means to me that you don't, you know, deny, diminish, or, or disregard that bad things happen in life. We know that they do. We know that there are senseless, uh, inexplicable scenarios, situations, challenges that arise in this life. Sometimes it's in the form of, of losing a child. Um, I've got some friends, very dear, close friends of mine that have, have miscarried a child. And I cannot even imagine you know, that feeling of, of, of hope of like, we're going to have a baby and then you don't. Same thing with losing a, a child that is you know, one, two, three years old. Um, all the way up into, you know, the teenage years. Like we have this concept of life that like, you know, average age is, you know, 78 years old and that's, that's a good life. And if you live beyond that, you're a lucky one. Well, when someone dies in the early years of life, then it's just, it, I can't even wrap my head around it because I was almost one of them. And for me, I guess, looking at all the positive things in life or the idea that there is good in everything that even amidst a, a cancer diagnosis or you know financial struggles or natural disaster there's good to be found whether it's people coming together to solve a problem whether it changes your perspective on life there's a, a friend of mine who i just met recently um, that i know i'm going to know forever her name's amanda and she was diagnosed with cancer not long ago. And now she's following a similar path where you know, she's about to race the Ironman World Championship. And she loves being outdoors and climbing mountains and all that. And she wrote on her Instagram um, not long ago, you know, when you're diagnosed with cancer, it transforms your outlook on life. And while I always, I now say that cancer was the hardest thing I've ever had to endure, it was also one of the best things that I've beaten. Because now, like you said before, there are so many things that are trivial and I'm able to find the silver lining, find the good in every situation. So for me, you know, I'm, I'm five foot three cancer stunted my growth. I stopped growing at the age of 10, but guess what? I'm never uncomfortable on airplanes and I can oftentimes find kid clothes that are far cheaper than the adult versions. Um, you know, I, I can't have kids. Cancer took my fertility from me. But that just gives me, uh, you know, my wife, Kendall, and I more time to spend with our friends that have kids. That also gives us the freedom to travel if we want. So growing up, yes, I wanted a, a baby, a child of my own. And we're not ruling out, you know, adopting a beautiful baby in the future. But right now we're focusing on what, you know, good has come from my infertility. And the book is based on three tenets that I've kind of identified as what gives me purpose and meaning in life. The first tenet is to be selfish. And by that, I mean, take care of your mind, body, and soul. Do what you need to get to 100% because I can't give 100% unless I am 100%. And I've heard a lot of people throughout my life say, like, the purpose of life is to be selfless. Well, you can't give back to the world if you are not whole. So be selfish. It is perfectly fine to be selfish. Two, surround yourself with good people. That means surrounding yourself with people who are also selfish in a good way, but that lift you up and more than anything, don't bring you down. I think in life we fall into these rhythms or these ruts where you know we're so used to hanging out with people and we have familiarity and we have affinity for these people because they were part of our life at a pivotal point in our life, whether it's you know college, high school, uh, first job, um, bonding over a hobby of some sort that we are sometimes unable to recognize when 
that person or, you know, hanging out with that person isn't really contributing to your best self. You know, I, I recognize that there's some people that, you know, in my past, like I embraced kind of like the drug culture, like, yeah, let's get high, let's get fucked up, you know, whatever. Um, let's go, let's go drink, let's go have beers. And, you know, getting to the point where you're, you know, almost blackout drunk during, you know, my addiction days, I, I had to take, take a step back and look at it. Like, is this person contributing to being my best self? So number two is surround yourself with good people. And number three, I call it the, the itch of altruism. Number three is leave the world better than you found it. Now I've kind of gotten that from, you know, my dad taught me that grandma Millie taught me that I'm privileged to work with a company called high five events where we produce the Austin marathon, the capital 10 K Kerrville triathlon festival, and a number of other, you know, various events throughout the years. And I've been working for them in some capacity since 2010. And one of our rules, one of our you know mantras that we go by is leave the site better than we found it. So if we mm. are producing an event at Auditorium Shores, you guarantee that whatever trash was there before is going to be picked up by us and we're going to leave it better than we found it. In terms of the more broader approach to the world, leaving the world better than you found it can start with just simply holding the door open for someone, smiling at a stranger. If somebody cuts you off or, you know, needs to get in traffic, just let them, who cares? Like, you know, we're all trying to get to some destination, some place, and we have control over whether or not we escalate things into the negative. Leaving the world better than you found, it starts with a smile, but can go all the way up to starting a charity, um, you know, saving a life in some way, um, being a good steward of the environment, saving an animal, adopting a child, whatever it may be, scratching that itch of altruism, to leave the world a better place, in my opinion, is the ultimate purpose. And there's a quote by George Bernard Shaw, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, but he essentially says, like, I want to be used up. I want to be a service to my community and the people around me that when I die, you know, people know that I was of service. And those three tenets, being selfish, surrounding yourself with good people and leaving the world better than you found it is finding good. It's deciding to make a decision you know, making a decision every single day to wake up and again, not disregard or deny that bad days happen, but focusing on the fact that there's good in everything. Hey, Mike, I, um, first of all, I love where you've gotten to, but it's been kind of unfolding for about, I'm guessing the last 15 years. So if you're somebody that's like escaping a dark time, like where, you know, you went to rehab for a month, what would you advise them? on finding something that is more important than maybe the drugs or to that thing that, you know, is holding them back before, because it sounds great now, like you're living a great life, but I'm sure it probably wasn't easy when you came out of rehab. What would you advise or tell someone who yearns for a better life, but they don't know what to do? It sounds oversimplified to say this, but find something that you like to do and, and do it because you like it, not because other people are doing it. For me, sports was a huge part of my life. You know, baseball and soccer were fixtures uh, in my life growing up every year. When I emerged on the other side of cancer, I was nowhere near, you know, had no the, nowhere near the size, strength, stamina to compete with other, other kids my age, other guys and girls that were also, you know, playing soccer or baseball or, or you know, pick up basketball or football or, or whatever. 
but I knew that I was an athlete. I knew that I wanted to be active. And it just so happened that during my cancer story, my dad had done a century bike ride supporting the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to you know, raise money for people like me battling a blood cancer. And I had this t-shirt and a month after I got out of rehab and I got back home to Austin, I had a Leukemia and Lymphoma Society t-shirt that it was sleeveless and it was the only thing that I thought would be comfortable to wear on a really hot summer day. And I put it on and I walked around, you know, walk, jog around the Town Lake Trail. And doctors had told me that I walking would be difficult and like running would be nearly impossible without pain in my leg. And so I had that idea the whole time that I was taking pain meds that like, well, doctors told me I'd be in pain. So it's okay that I'm in pain and I'm taking pain meds. But when I was off the drugs, I thought, you know, I'm just going to try and run. And if it hurts, it hurts. Big, you know, no big deal. But if it doesn't hurt, I'm going to pursue this. And I ran around the lake three miles, you know, the, the trail that I had ridden with my dad being a born and raised Austinite. And yep. I got runner's high. And I thought, holy crap, I love this feeling. I'm going to keep this going. And then I got back on the bicycle. I'd always ridden bikes since I was a kid. And I was like, all right, I'm going to ride bikes now. And the idea that I couldn't be an athlete specific to, you know, a soccer player, a baseball player killed me after I, you know, was free of cancer. But that didn't mean that I couldn't find another passion or a hobby in, you know, another sport or, you know, another kind of industry or space. So I would encourage people to just try different things. You, you don't know, you know, that's something my grandma Millie said when I was younger is, you know, she'd be like, well, do you like artichokes? And I would say no. And she goes, have you ever tried it? And I said, no. <laughs> She's like, well, then how do you know if you don't like it? So try something, you know, reach out to people, ask for help. More often than not, people are very receptive to providing opportunities to engage in various endeavors in life that they are passionate about and they want to share that passion with others. If I hadn't, you know, kind of overlooked the idea that I wouldn't be able to walk or run or have pain in my leg, I never would have, you know, gotten into cycling or running. And by doing so, that got me into triathlon. That took me all the way to the Ironman World Championship in Hawaii. I, you know, overcame the shrinking lung capacity and atrophy in my leg and uh, pain in my jaw to become, you know, an amateur triathlete. And that transformed my life because I, I started doing triathlons and I worked in the bike shop. I met a couple named Greg and Linda Rust through that bike shop. Their daughter is Kendall. Kendall's now my wife. Mm. So you don't know what events are going to transpire to get you where you need to be until you start pursuing those events and experiences. So the biggest piece of advice I have to anyone, whether you're a cancer survivor, recovering drug addict, or just a normal human being, is just get out there and explore this world. Try something because you don't know what's going to light you up to the point where it puts you on a path of prosperity that you never thought was possible. Yeah, I, uh, I talk to a lot of people who are very unhappy in life and, and haven't gone through anything like what you have. But there's this, this is stat, I think I've mentioned this before, but that 75% of people are just disconnected to the work that they do, which blows my mind away. And the thing that I love about the simplicity of your advice is to go find something that you love. And I think invariably when we figure out that thing that we love, we probably will back up into a career that actually makes us really happy. And then quite frankly, we'll probably be more successful than we otherwise would have been. 
Um, and then the other thing that you said that I think is extremely important is also just not being wedded to one path, meaning like you try something, you figure out if you like it, if you like it, you do more of it. If you don't, you do something else. Um, and so I think those few things just kind of you know, follow that itch that you have and it's likely going to lead you to good places. I think is such a great message. It's something that I fully believe in now. And one thing that I've, I've learned and, and leaned on is that money is the easiest thing in the world to earn. The challenging things to earn are trust and loyalty and, and love and just the consideration of others. And if you go through life, you know, with, with a bad attitude or you're just constantly bringing people down, then you're not really going to get anywhere because people don't have patience for that. And so developing a, a good attitude or at least portraying yourself as you have one as you endure different challenges and challenges in life is highly important because people are not going to have patience for somebody that has a bad attitude. And I, I try and promote that as much as possible. And sometimes, you know, I'm sure it annoys people, but when someone's complaining about like, oh, my job sucks or like, oh, I'm tired or oh, like I, I, I hate traffic, whatever. I'll just throw out a little, yeah, you know, I, I was pretty unhappy whenever um, I was dying of cancer, um, but I, I made it, <laughs> you know, and, you know, kind of throwing that little survivor's guilt out there, um, you know, really kind of humbles people and brings it back together. And the overarching message of the book is I try and convey to people that, like, I understand that you may not have been in a similar situation to mine. And so reaching down for that kind of perspective of like finding good in everything, you know, it just might not be readily available for you. It may, may take time to develop that perspective and to, to practice it and put it into play every single day. But my hope is that when people read about my experiences, whether it's the cancer, whether it's the addiction, you know, kind of being dealt a bad hand, is that they'll say like, yeah, I may not have experienced the, the trauma or the challenges that Mike went through, but because I know that those experiences can happen in life, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And I'm going to think about the people that Mike speaks about in his book, the, you know, Tom, Emma, Kelly, Ashley, Billy, uh, Jana, Jen, like all these people that I've loved and lost to, to cancer or to uh, drug addiction or to, you know, freak accidents or heart attacks or, you know, getting hit on their bike, you know, all those things are incredibly traumatic and we know that they exist but as long as you just cherish life for you know when it's good and and when it's bad recognize that it can be good again then you will kind of never be lost as you navigate you know this experience that we all have to live and you know for me it's again reminding myself every day with a little token I have this little blue heart that my mom gave me before my very first surgery, and it's made it through every experience since then, you know, almost 90 surgeries, the bone marrow transplants, um, traveling to Kona for the Ironman, traveling to Africa to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, um, every little trip that I've taken, um, going abroad um, to finish grad school, that heart has been with me. And it doesn't mean that I don't have bad days. I have shitty days all the time. Just ask my wife. <laughs> but... I have that heart with me all the time to remember that there were better days behind me. There will be better days ahead. And I am in control of how I react to both positive and negative things that happen in life. 
Mike, one thing you've done that I love, I don't know if I've ever seen somebody do it as much as you have, is calling out very specific people that have helped you on the journey. Meaning like, it seems like you're extremely intentional to say, we lost, you know, X, Y, and Z, or I want to thank these individuals. I think that's to be commended because, I mean, obviously these people have made a big impact in your life, but you're giving back to them by recognizing them. So I just commend you for that. My, my view of that is the value that certain people have added to my life will never be repaid because it is so valuable. It's something, it's almost like if you, you know, you have a, a really wealthy friend that, or, or you know, a, a generous benefactor of some sort donates, um, you know, a million dollars to a charity that you support, which, which happened to me. Um, you know, some very close friends were, you know, supporters already of an organization that I work for. And they had said, you know, throughout, throughout some challenging times in the organization, they had said, you know, some bad things have happened. Y'all have given us every reason to leave. Why don't you try giving us a reason to stay? And, you know, after some, you know, some work and some strategy building, um, you know, they were ready and eager to, you know, re-engage as donors and gave us a million dollars. Well, that I'll never be able to repay something of that nature, of that gesture. And I've had, I've also had a lot of people in life that have supported me, you know, financially. There's also the the intangible and the the really invaluable aspect of you know just support through advice and and mentorship and guidance um, through you know personal and professional endeavors, and it's that you know kind of cliche of like pay it forward. Um, I I will never be able to repay the value that a lot of people have given to me. But I also know that because I know the type of person they are, they would never ask for that in return. So to me, the only logical decision is to champion that gift, that generosity through the betterment of others. And, you know, in the book, I, I do, I, I, I name drop. I talk a lot about people that have helped me get to where I am today. And it is my, you know, relentless endeavor to pay them back by paying forward the, the gifts and the generosity that they've bestowed upon me. I love that. I have two final questions. What is the message that you want to leave with our listeners? I would say the message that I want to leave with our listeners is that you are more in control of your life than you think. There, I, you know... In terms of my, there's a, there's a, a term a definition that I taught when I was a, an instructor uh, at Texas State. I was teaching an undergraduate communication course um, called Fundamentals of Human Communication. And one of the concepts that we teach the kids is positionality. And positionality can be any characteristic that defines your identity, who you are. So my positionality is I am a middle-aged, white, born and raised American, born and raised Austinite, um, sports fan, athlete, foodie, who loves dogs and loves to travel. Um, I am spiritual, not religious now, and I am a steward of the environment. All those things, you know, are, you know, comprise my positionality. And I understand that in terms of what people are born into, 
I am the average. You know, I wasn't born into a wealthy family, but I wasn't born into a, a poverty-stricken family. Um, I feel like I was lucky to be born in America compared to, you know, other countries, other parts of the world where, you know, there's not a lot of resources available or there's crime or there's war or there's famine. And, you know, that kind of goes into more of like your sociopolitical and, and religious arguments of like, well, if somebody is born in a third world country, how will they ever be exposed to, you know, a certain type of ideology or religion? Um, and so, you know, for me, I, I want you to understand that as long as you have the ability to communicate, as long as you have the ability to think, you are in control of so much more than you think you do in life. And if you can harness that, if you can really grab onto the idea that you may not control, be able to control what happens to you, but you sure can control how you react to it, that is power. It is. And I think it's the thing that gets in so many people's way. And quite frankly, it's the thing that got in my way many years ago where, you know, I had looked to blame other people or I wouldn't take responsibility for my own path. And I think once you, once you do take that responsibility, there's so many things that are truly in your control that you can execute on that will allow you to have a great life. Time to sing your song. That's the name of the podcast. You are absolutely singing your song now. So when you reflect back on your journey, what is the song that comes to mind? So I thought about this after our very first conversation, and I'm a, I'm a big lover of music. There's, there are so many songs that I love. Um, I, I kind of shy towards the, um, I shy away from, you know, really like heavy kind of angry music and, and steer more towards really sentimental, um, uplifting, powerful, uh, you know, melodies and harmonies. And I, I started to think like, okay, what's, what's my walk-up song? If I yep. went back, back playing baseball. And for me, it's a song called Wake Me Up by Aloe Black. And it was, um, uh, you know, kind of a compilation with the artist Avicii, who's um, sadly no longer with us, but he was an incredible um, kind, of, kind of composer of, of different songs that he collaborated with other artists on and just, you know, made the, the music really kind of pipe into your soul. And the lyrics to the song, you know, starts out by, you know, feeling my way through the darkness, guided by a beating heart. I can't tell where the journey will end, but I know where to start. That The opening part of that song for me is so powerful because at any moment in life, you know, you can start something, you can begin anew. And a lot of people will, you know, kind of play the victim. And I, and I saw it when I was younger of, you know, other kids that were diagnosed with cancer. And sadly, they, you know, they, and again, I, I want to respect the power of prayer, but uh, there's this old kind of uh, lesson or, or parable, if you want to call it, of the man that's trapped on his house during a flood. And, you know, he's, he's about to drown, the, the floodwaters are rising, and a boat comes by, a guy with a, a canoe, and he says, jump in, I'll save you. And he says, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I pray God will save me. So the, the canoe paddles off, and then a, uh, a helicopter flies over, and they, they yell down, hey, come on, grab onto the ladder, we'll save you, we'll make it happen. And the guy says, no, I'm, I'm a Christian, I, I pray God will save me. 
Uh, and then, you know, finally a, uh, a big ship comes by and it's got all these passengers on it and they say, come on, man, catch life buoy. Well, um, we'll, we'll save you. And he says, Nope, I'm a Christian. I pray God will save me. And the floods, floodwaters rise. The man dies and at heavens, he asks God, I'm a Christian. I pray like, why didn't you save me? And he's like, I sent you a canoe. I sent you a helicopter and I sent you a ship and you didn't take anyone. And I think we kind of get wrapped up in our circumstances, me especially with like, well, I was diagnosed with cancer. Like I'm the victim. This sucks. Right. Because of the cancer, I dropped out of college. Because of the cancer, I got addicted to drugs. Because of cancer, I lost this many years of my life. But at any moment, I can say, I, I don't know where the journey will end, but I know where to start, just like that song says. Yeah. And Aloe Black talks about, you know, being in a dream. And there's one, you know, I guess, verse in this that I really love. And I'm not going to sing it because I'm tone deaf. But it says, uh, I tried carrying the weight of the world, but I only have two hands. I hope I get to travel the world, but I don't have any plans. Wish that I could stay forever this young. I'm not afraid to close my eyes. Life's a game made for everyone and love is the prize. That to me, you know, I, I love to travel. I want to experience all that this world has to offer. But if I, at the end of the day, and I kind of hate that phrase because a lot of people overuse it, but truly at the end of the day, at night, when I'm laying my head to sleep, I know that I have done all that I can to uplift and benefit the lives of people around me, that I've you know, worked hard towards uh, a worthy cause that I've done what I can to leave the world better than I found it, then that is the love that I think provides endless purpose for us. And that's why Wake Me Up is the song that I want. And the, the chorus is, wake me up when it's all over, when I'm wiser and I'm older. All this time I was finding myself and I, I didn't know that I was lost. You can feel lost so many times in life, but if you look around you and you start to intentionally identify the things that give you value in life, then you'll never be lost and you'll always, always, always be able to find the good. What a great way to end it. Mike, I really appreciate you coming on. Time to sing your song. Just one last thing. Where or when can people find your book? I think you're still in the process of finalizing it. What's your kind of timing and where will be able to, people be able to find it? Yeah, we are in the kind of production phase right now. So the, the manuscript is complete and I've got a, a great team with me. Um, my you know friend and former supervisor, uh, Anne-Marie is an incredible project manager and she's helping me you know formulate uh, a lot of the strategy for marketing the book once it's complete. And then I also have a wonderful lady named Cindy Hughes who is uh, editing and, and getting the book ready for actual publishing. So probably about a month from um, when we're recording this podcast. So, you know, right now it's uh, October 3rd. Um, we're looking for, you know, a late October, early November launch. The good news is, is that pre-orders are live. So if you go to my new website, um, got a great new website, thanks to my friends at Compose. They are a web development company um, that have streamlined the website to make it uh, e-commerce ready, um, and certainly, you know, mobile, uh, and desktop optimized. Uh, but if you go to findinggood.co, 
Um, that's findinggood.co. You can pre-order the book there. Um, and like I said, we're, we're hoping to have the copies in hand uh, by the end of October, you know, first, second week in November at the latest, and hopefully be a, a great, you know, celebrated story um, for people to share and, and uplift and more than anything, empower people to find the good in their own lives. Ah, love it. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Mike. Been a pleasure. Mike, thank you for sharing your story. You were unbelievably authentic, vulnerable, and just real. There was actually a point after you talked about the letters you received from your classmates that I choked up off Mike. Your story demonstrates that really with the right mindset, failure is not an option, and support from family and friends, we can overcome just about anything. And I know that there are a lot of people out there who are sick or have family members who are or are dealing with addiction. My hope is that today's conversation gave you the strength to pull through. And if you find yourself backed up against the wall, reach out to your family and friends. It may not seem obvious, but there are a lot of people out there who will show up in your darkest hour. If you like my conversation with Mike, go back to past episodes to hear other amazing stories of people who were once lost or broken and now are singing their song. Big thank you to everyone who listens to Time to Sing Your Song and being part of this community that I am building. My goal is to help everyday people like you and me use the hard times as a catalyst to create a life we were all meant to live. Until next time, start singing your song today because as the anonymous quote goes, when tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever. In its place, something that you have left behind. Let it be something good.